Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Oakland, California. Welcome to Sound Design Live. I am your host, Nathan Lively, and today my guest is sound designer and composer Harry Mack. Harry, thanks for being here. Hey, my pleasure. So, Harry mostly works in game design. But I wanted to get him on Sound Design Live because he has a lot of helpful things to share about building a successful career as an independent contractor. Many people in my audience work as freelancers, and I'm sure we'll appreciate advice we can share about finding new clients and retaining current ones. So, Harry, first of all, I'd like to ask you about your personal settlers. <laughs> Sorry. The settlers of Catan. First of all, I'd like to ask you about your personal settlers of Catan strategy. Trading wood for sheep. Oh, well, you know, I grew up with that game, as I'm sure a lot of people did. Um, I may be a little bit different in that I have three older brothers, and uh, they're very competitive. So uh, my games have been very cutthroat and very like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you traded with him. He's winning. What are you doing? You're throwing the game to him. Um, it's, it's high stress. And I realized it wasn't really that fun. Um, and it took me some time growing up to realize that winning isn't really everything. It's really just hanging out and having fun. So my strategy was to kind of cheat a little bit to, to let my brothers win if I happen to be in a winning situation. So in the end, everyone's a little bit happier. That's profound. So you used to make people cry, but now you just like to have fun. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's retribution. They made me cry a lot, I'm sure. So, Harry, there's lots of information out there about the pros and cons of working as a freelancer. And uh, I recommend that everyone read Working for Yourself by Stephen Fishman. It's uh, this NOLO book, if people are familiar with that publisher. Um, the very first chapter is called Working for Yourself, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. So through your personal experience, Harry, what are the main advantages and disadvantages of being an independent contractor? Well, the first is going to be security, of course. Um, but as we're finding these days, that's really not the correct answer. Um, you would think that getting a, a steady paycheck and having a salary and health benefits and all of that um, these days would be the secure option, as opposed to freelancing, where you're not sure where your next project is coming in. It could be a, you know, a couple of weeks or months between projects. But um, for the game industry, um, the security answer isn't really uh, the one to be looking at because game companies are very tenuous. Um, they can fold, you can get laid off, um, projects get shifted around. You could work a couple years on a game and have it canceled because of funding. When I started my career, um, I was single and I was happy enough to you know, work freelance. Um, and I thought as soon as I had a family, I would definitely want to go into a game company and just go in every day and know my hours and know what my salary is going to be. Um, but my uh, colleagues in the, the game industry, they're, they're finding work every other year or sometimes they, they get a new job. A couple months later, the, you know, the studio closes down. So um, it's really tricky right now. Um, obviously, from a working standpoint, there's a huge amount of advantages of working in a company, um, some of which are 
faster turnaround times. Like um, if you need to talk to a programmer or an artist, they're just right there. You walk over there, you say, hey, you know, let's get this implemented. What does this look like? Um, as a freelancer, oftentimes it, it could be a couple of days to see something implemented or to get an answer to a question. And that, that can be kind of frustrating. In working for yourself, you can have many different clients so that if one project fails, uh, you can move on to another one and you can choose, hopefully, the clients that are more stable. The real trick is to just always have a backup. You know, you can't just assume that everything is going to work out. So, um, you know, like I even, I say, if, if it's like three months and I just don't have any projects and things are drying up, um, maybe things are shifting, maybe everybody is just going for, um, you know, sounds that you can just download. They don't need sound designers. I mean, that could happen at any minute. Maybe a music program comes out and you just start slamming on the keyboard and awesome music pops up. And now you don't need a composer. Um, I mean, who knows what's going to happen in a decade. Um, so you, you always need a backup plan. Um, like for me, like, I have lots of music backgrounds, so I could you know, do some piano teaching. I could go and you know do some college courses, um, and always keeping ties with something that can happen as a as a fallback is very important. I don't know if I could go back to being an employee. I think it would be tough to come into an office and have uh, someone else always dictating the schedule and the priorities. It really comes down to personality. Like um, if you are the type that wants to be directed, then that's great. And if you want to be the one that's calling the shots and pushing back the clients and saying, no, this is the audio design, I'm the professional, you should listen to me, um, and you know, you're know, you hiring me for my expertise, um, I mean, it's going to appeal to different types of people. Um, I personally could go either way. Like, there's, there's a lot of advantages and disadvantages to both. Obviously, being able to set your own hours is excellent. But at the same time, sometimes you really don't get to set your hours. It's just work nonstop. Right. And, and even when you are not completely swamped with a bunch of multiple projects, well, now you have to work even harder to, to make sure that you have projects coming in. I think you and I took similar paths that are pretty common where you start out working in a venue, in my case, or working at a studio, in your case, and you're working for someone else and you have constant work for a few years and then eventually you go independent. So I think that's a pretty common route. Well, I would say to anyone, um, if they're looking to get into game um, industry and and maybe for other fields too, is uh, you definitely need to go in and see how a studio runs. Um, it, even if you're not the audio designer, you can go in and um, if you're just starting, get a testing job, you know, something low entry, like even like a, a secretary position or whatever, just so you're in there and you can see how everything's running. Um, you can see um, the project cycle from beginning to end and that's extremely valuable. When I started my career as, um, I mean, I started freelance, which is to say I didn't have a job. Uh. I, like, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I said, I just want to be a music composer. You know, I don't want to do sound effects. Um, like, I just love music. So, like, and that's how I approached clients. I said, well, you know, I can do the music. You'll have to hire someone for the sound effects. And every single one is like, um, no, we usually just get one guy. And, you know, if I had that experience in the beginning, um, working in a company, I would see that, you know, the audio teams, depending on the size of the project, of course, um, it's usually just one or two guys and they do it all. And of course, if you're, if you're talking about the AAA, you know, they have like three or four composers and lots of sound designers, um, getting to see how that works and what the sizes are and, and how it all works out is extremely valuable. Um, and that's, that's where I 
decided to go after a year of, of just not really getting anything to click. I said, you know, I, I just need more experience. I need to know, like, sure, I've played games all my life and I've, I've had music part of my life. But to put it all together and see how it works in a project, learning the jargon and knowing who to talk to. Do I talk to the artist, the animator, the producer, uh, the engineer? Like, who's going to answer my question? Who, who should I not be bugging? Um, how long does it take? Is it two weeks for a turnaround time to see implementation? Is that crazy? Or, like, like what's going on? Um, I learned all of that by um, working as a tester and just seeing the different projects and uh, the different teams and how they work together. So I would say to anyone, if you can, um, get some experience in-house first. And once you're comfortable learning all that stuff, then you can feel free to go independent. You can find relevant links and more information about today's interview by using the search box on sounddesignlive.com. While you're there, Pick up the Sound Design Live ebook with the best material from my first two years of interviews with audio industry leaders. So you wrote this article called Best Tips for Building a Freelance Career. So I'd like to go through some of the points that you make there. Um, first of all, I think it's really easy to say, always be professional. And everyone agrees, of course, let's always be professional, but it takes some experience to find out what that really means. So could you identify some of the mistakes you've made in the past where you weren't a professional and you just made one where when you were first a freelancer, uh, you didn't know that it was often common to do sound effects and composing. And so you probably lost some work that way or you were surprised. But can you think of some other examples where um, maybe you acted inappropriately or communicated uh, in a strange way or to the wrong person and then people corrected you? Yeah, sure. Um, it's kind of like two different questions here. I, I think the first one is um, you're asking what does it mean to be professional? And um, when I was talking about in the article was more specifically just the basic stuff like um, emailing promptly, like being courteous in your emails and using proper grammar, that sort of thing. Using lead speak and um, improper in grammar and not emailing back clients and stuff like that, that's what's going to lose you credibility. And if you just present yourself as a professional, you'll be received as professional. And that's um, someone who's educated and um, is confident, who knows what they're doing, as opposed to uh, you know being very um, like meek and asking a lot of questions and you know deferring everything back to them and not really sure where you're going. I mean, they they pick up on this and. And if you present yourself as professional, you'll be received as professional. And that's kind of what I was talking about um, in the article. And a lot of that comes from just speaking to some clients. How you know, They all have a story of some audio guy that was just completely flaky. I, I always, it just baffles me. Like, if, if you're going to be working for some people and they're putting trust in you, I mean, the least you could do is capitalize your eyes and put periods in the end of sentences. Uh, if you get into a little bit more advanced stuff, like drawing up quotes and making sure you have your NDA and knowing the process, I mean, that's, that's higher rung professionalism that is definitely important. And just knowing, like you're, you're talking about, what, what things to avoid mistakes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But just start with the basic stuff at least. And I'm only mentioning this because of so many stories that I've heard. And maybe this is true for, for every industry and every field. Um, but it could be that the artistic types have like sort of a, 
a quote unquote character, you know, and like, you know, I'm going to be flashy and who gives a crap and that's part of my persona. And that might have worked um, in the beginning. Like, there's, there's certainly characters, and people know them. Like, um, you know, the fat man um, is a very important audio figure, and he comes up, and he's big, and he's got the cowboy hat and, you know, the, the horns on his car, and he's a guy. Um, and people would always say, if you're going to the GDC or a conference, like, stand out and, you know, wear a wig and be crazy. And I, that may get attention, but it, I'm not sure if that's the right attention that you want. People are really worried about their games. They want to make sure that their game succeeds. They want to produce something that's high quality. Mm-hmm. And to put your faith into someone who may be flaky, as opposed to someone who has a clean website. Um, I mean, someone who, creativity, for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about something that's just stark and, and, and reads like a manual, but... Um, Professionalism is definitely important. Um, the second part of your question was if I've made mistakes, and of course, <laughs> I've made mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Um, it's part of the business. A, a lot of it um, could betray how much you know the systems and the processes. And for me, I think some of the biggest mistakes I've made is not quite knowing when to keep my mouth shut um, in regards to being so excited to be on part of a project um, and just going out and saying, hey, I'm working on this project. You know, just something as simple as confirming that um, is a big no-no. You can't release any information at all about the game, about that you're working on it, anything, until you get a clear from the people you're working for. Um, Like even just the project title sometimes is like, I can't believe you just spread that across the internet and how everybody knows the name of our game. Wait, don't you want people to know the name of your game? Uh, No, not until our PR people are ready to release it. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm really sorry about that. And like, that's just, I mean, that hurts. Um, Like, I I just feel like, like I don't belong in the industry to even know that I can't talk about, you know, the first and second rules of the the game club. (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's it's fine to be open about your level of knowledge. Um, I remember when I was first starting out, I was always trying to pretend like I had a lot more experience than I did. And it was obvious in the way that I communicated that I didn't know all of the processes and uh, the chain of command. So I wish I would have just asked more questions because I hear my friends complaining now about people who ignore the chain of command and don't Hmm. clearly communicate their issue. So when I first started working in theater, for example, I always had to preface my questions with, who should I talk to about this question? Because I didn't have a lot of experience in theater before that. And it's fine to ask that and people appreciate it. And then you learn and, and you ask the right people for the right questions, hopefully. Yeah, for sure. Um, usually the person that uh, contacts you for the work is not the person that's going to be answering all your questions. I mean, it's absolutely true. If you start sending them emails and bugging them, um, that's going to get on their nerves when they're like, I don't know, talk to this guy. So it's true. You should definitely say, it's like, I have a question about this sound or this music. Um, can I talk to the animator and the artist to see how it's going to look in game? Or should I talk to the designer to see what the feeling is supposed to be, or should I talk to the producer to find out who I should be talking to? Um, yeah, so it, definitely there's there's lots of things that you need to be worried about, especially the, the chain of command. Um, and the worst of it would be going too high or too low. So if you just ask the right questions, that's very important. Let me step back a minute and 
ask you how you met your first clients and got your first jobs. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I think a lot of people are going to be in the same boat. You know, they get out of college and they say, I want to be a game designer. I want to be an artist, an audio designer. Um, but you're not quite sure what to do at that point. So, you know, you turn to the internet and you see who's hiring and maybe you say, hey, you know, I'll, I'll work for you for free or, you know, send out some resumes and you just don't hear anything back. And that can be very discouraging. Um, especially if you think like you're you know, a super genius, my music is awesome. Look at this art, like this portfolio, it beats Blizzard stuff. Like, why isn't anyone noticing it? Mm -hmm. It all comes down to luck. I mean, it's kind of sad. Um, it just comes down to luck. It's, it's a lot like the, uh, the film industry. If you're an actress, you know, if you're a writer, it's who you know and how lucky you are. And so the most important thing is to network and to, to get out there. Um, the internet was a really good resource for me. Of course, it's gonna be for everybody. But more than that, most people say that they will hire the guy that they you know, bought him a beer at some convention than you know, who sends stacks of CDs and resumes to. So I, I learned that fairly on when just nobody returned anything from anything that I was sending. There's a lot of things that you can do, and I don't know if this is quite your question, but I would say to start out, you would need to make sure that you have a professional-looking website, and on that website is just your contact information and some samples. And that's a really good starting ground. Um, that's kind of where I started, too. Just so you have a place to direct people. So when you meet people, they know where to go. Um, from there, I knew that I needed to actually have some experience. So I um, started to contact uh, student projects, um, joined some forums about different games that were starting up. And they were all just like, hey, let's share in the profits. You know, we're going to make a game for free and, you know, percentages, you get this, you get that. Um, I must have worked on like a dozen, a couple dozen of them, and every single one of them just didn't get made. Oh. And no, every single one barely even got off the drawing board. No matter how crazy, enthusiastic, and excited these people were, showing um, like bare bones websites, maybe some art that was thrown up, and look who we've got as an engineer. Like, and it's just all of it just wasn't managed properly, or they're just kids, or um, none of them actually got created. So it's, it's hard to say, you know, start working on student projects because I myself know that that never worked out. But for me, in a sense, it did because one of those people um, working on a game that didn't work out ended up getting a job somewhere and they had worked with me and liked me and liked my music. And so when it came time to look for audio in, in their game studio, he called me over and that was like an introduction to that company. And so that's how I got started, was building the contacts and then just getting lucky. Um, and it really, I don't know if it mattered so much if I was a genius or if I was really bad. It's more how, um, how friendly you are and how you network and how you meet people. And um, as long as your stuff's pretty decent, when you go into that interview and you're excited about games and you're a friendly guy and they want to hire you and you can do the work, um, I mean, that's really important. And um, 
so that's that's what worked out for me. It's just being nice and friendly and out there and very, very lucky. That's interesting because I've gotten almost all of my jobs just by hanging out at music venues and uh, going to see theater and meeting other sound designers and sound engineers. But it sounds like you got your first jobs just by hanging out in forums and working on uh, small projects with people who were in the same boat as you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's not to say I didn't try all the other venues. Like I went to the conferences, I had my stacks of CDs to hand out and my resumes, and I tried to talk people up. Um, but I mean, they could just smell the desperation, you know, like it's some guy that <laughs> hasn't worked on anything before. Um, he's he's obviously sitting down here to talk to us to get a job. And nowadays, I'm sure that's much, much worse. Um, the last few conventions that I went to, it was it was crazy. It was just so many people running around like, hey, do you have a job? Do you have a job? Do you have a job? Like nobody had jobs. Everybody was looking for work. I'd, I would be very afraid to start working right now. Um, as opposed to a decade ago, wow. because it's it's a very new environment. But you know, it's not it's not so bleak um, with uh, with the app store and with the small space games where small studios actually have a chance. I mean, that's great because when I first got in, like I just thought PlayStation games. I mean, that's what I'm working on because there's nothing else. It's it's console games and PC games that don't really sell too well. Um, handhelds. I mean, who knows what that is and how to get in contact with those people. But nowadays, like everybody is making apps for free, putting them up there, using them as showcase. So maybe going that route would actually um, get some more traction these days. Sound Design Live produces free audio podcast interviews with industry experts, product reviews of pro audio books, hardware, and software, and tutorials and articles on sound engineering, sound design, and sound system design and optimization. Subscribe today at sounddesignlive.com or by searching for Sound Design Live in iTunes or SoundCloud. Harry, after 10 years of working professionally, do you still actively promote yourself some way through networking or, I don't know, cold calls or ads or anything like that? Well, I mean, obviously, <laughs> I'm doing this, right? Um, it's always going to be part of this project. Uh, it's always going to be part of my career. As an independent audio designer, I'm just going to have to keep growing my clients and getting my name out there as much as possible. Um, it's my least favorite part of this job. Like, I love when I'm composing and I love when I'm doing my sounds. I don't like writing up contracts and harassing people and... Um, going to conventions and trying to stick my business card in every person's hand. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very thankful that I haven't really needed to do that um, like in the last like four or five years. Um, that's, I, I, but I still need to and I still go out there. That's just going to be part of, I think, everybody's career who's a freelancer. They just need to have that role of cards where they spin it and, you know, hey, do you have any work? Um, do you have any work? Um, cold calling is part of the business. It has never, ever worked out for me. I have never picked up the phone or an email and ever had someone say, why, yes, I actually do have some work for you. I'm so glad that you emailed me. Um, <laughs> probably because these people get like a thousand of those emails a day. I have some people that rant um, at, uh, at conventions at me. It's like, man, you audio designers are always emailing me. Like, uh, no. Like, wow. 
like, like, I don't want to listen to your sound reel. Like, I've already listened to 30 today. Um, so I, I don't know, maybe it's the same for art and everything, but it's, it's, it's tough. I don't, I don't like that part of it as much, of course. Um, there's some people that love being social and being out there and, and being a character and being a name and promoting themselves. Um, I just, I kind of like to have people come to me because then it's like, well, okay, so you want the work, great. So now I don't have to like, you know, get on my hands and knees and beg for it. And I, and that's it's certainly a good place to be. I have had a little bit more luck in contacting um, companies that I don't think audiovisual technicians would normally contact. I think probably lots of sound engineers when they're first starting out are thinking about contacting the big concert venues and contacting artists, but they don't really think about contacting um, law firms, for example, to offer them their services for live events or for webcasts or for um, PowerPoint presentations and meetings or whatever it might be. And I've had a, l- a little bit of luck recently in uh, making those kinds of contacts. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, trying um, to find the niche that, that other people are ignoring. Absolutely. Um, I would completely agree with trying to be original and breaking out of the box like I said, I'm sure these people are getting a million emails, so that's not going to be effective. And getting a phone call, I used to get phone calls from audio people when I was working at a game company. And I was working at a small, a smaller company, like less than 20 people. And I was the only audio designer. And I just get so many calls directed to me from like these you know, big shot audio guys I've worked on a million games, like asking for work. I was like, dude, like I'm working on my second project here and you're <laughs> calling this crazy little company that, you know, I'd like, how did you even find us? <laughs> it's definitely interesting to try to break the mold. Um, if you go to my website, there's a lot of things that I've tried that is not just a demo reel. Um, there's a whole bunch of different things to click on. Like I have an interactive studio um, I have a lot of personal projects that I kind of promote that isn't so game related. Um, I think that if people are creative with their sound reels and with their websites and they have something that maybe other people haven't thought of, um, like you're talking about talking to different people that maybe haven't been talked to death, then then that's great. Because I've had a few people say, you know, I accidentally Googled this and your crazy thing popped up that had nothing to do with games, but like I looked at it and it was cool and I sent it to my game friend and he liked it. And, you know, I'm, I thought that's cool. And so it's, it's working. Uh, Harry, in the bidding process, do you ever find it helpful to throw out ballpark figures? Like for one camera, it would be less than a thousand dollars, but for a multi-camera event, it would be more than a thousand or, or something big like that. Yes. Yes, uh, that's what you have to do. You just have to, because you'll never know what they're thinking for their budget um, unless they tell you. And there's been so precious few wonderful occasions when they say, hey, we have you know a couple thousand dollars to do this, and here's the work. Is that something that you can do? I love those types of emails because it's just so easy to say, yes, I can do it for that amount, or you know, I can do it for that amount, but maybe we'd cut some of this because that would take too much. Um, and that's just a great way to, to start a conversation, but it, it rarely happens that way. Mostly is what do you charge? 
And it's really so that they can have a number and compare it to the 30 other people that they have emailed or the 100 people that have emailed them. Mm-hmm. And they can say, well, whatever is the lowest versus quality what we'll, is what we'll go for. I found that for the bidding, bidding process, I will never answer on the first email unless it's just like, you know, a really obvious, easy question. Um, I will usually just say, I would love to drop a quote for you. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about the project? Um, such as your timelines, um, how big it is. You know, there's a million questions. And you just need to to get these figures in order to even begin to think of a quote. Um, and one of the tricks that I found is usually they will have a signature or in their email they have their company name. And that can give you a lot of information, such as, um, you know, you Google up the studio and, and you can see that they've made a bunch of AAA titles or um, you can't buy their website and you don't know if they even are a studio. And that will give you a lot of information whether to proceed or how to proceed and how to draw up your quote or your bid. But definitely when it actually comes time to the bid, and unless like they're at the last two weeks and they know exactly what they want, they're not going to know how much music and sounds they're going to need for their project. If they're presenting to you a question of how much you charge, but they don't know how much they need, it's impossible to draw up a quote for that. So when you find out more information, try to find out what you're going to need in terms of assets. And if they still don't know, then you can just say, well, here's a, here's a ballpark figure I can charge um, per project, which is if it's like a, a small space game, I can go under this amount and give you all the audio. But if they really don't know and they want per asset, like per minute of music or per sound effect, then you give a range in the sense of like, well, the low end, you'll probably need about 50 sound effects, the high end, 150. Um, and so that's going to be your ballpark right there. It's going to be two figures. One of them is going to be the low end of the amount and the other is going to be the high end. And then they can kind of choose, well, we only have this much, they're thinking in their head. Um, so we will say, okay, so we'll need about 75 sound effects. And that kind of gives you an idea of, of what they're thinking of with, before they, they contact you. Because usually they'll have a number um, what they can spend or they have a bunch of other numbers that they can compare it to. And it's really tricky. Like even after 10 years of this, um, like I'm still like, oh my gosh, like how much should I charge? And like, if if it's a new studio, I like to cut them breaks. I like to say I give um, first client discounts. And um, if you're an indie studio, like, like I like to work with indie teams. They're great. You know, for a couple months, you can get something, you can see your results. And that's that's really great compared to a AAA title that takes years and, and may even get canceled. So I like to, to give discounts for that. Um, so that all will affect the, the ballpark figure. Sound design. Yeah. A year ago, I got a standing desk that can convert between sitting or standing, and, and that's been really good for me. So I usually um, sit for an hour and then stand for an hour and sit for an hour and stand for an hour. And that's great because then when I'm standing, then if I'm just listening or if I just need to think about something for a minute, then I pace, I dance, I, I do whatever. And, and so there, there's more movement and that can make a, a, a long work day a lot easier to get through. Well, that sounds great. Um, I noticed fairly early on in my uh, desk career that having the right chair and support is very helpful. 
Um, so something like that would be really cool. But um, in the last few years, I've like I started to get some some wrist problems and um, some back aches. Like, I'm I'm growing old. Like it's just gonna happen. But um, my wife uh, started to introduce me to yoga. And of course, that just sounds ridiculous, like yoga, haha. But it's actually been pretty dang helpful at the end of the day to kind of just stretch out everything, um, to have like 30 minutes of just quiet. And we don't do the incense, we don't do the, the lights or anything crazy, we don't do the hot yoga. Um, but just like having some downtime where like all day I'm just being pounded by like different rhythms and beats and noises and high pitches and like it's pretty stressful like at the end of it like I'm a little bit rattled like if especially if I have to do headphone work and put mixes on I'm gonna have a headache and I'm gonna forget that for two hours I didn't get up and my back is gonna hurt a little bit um, but to every single night to have some real quiet time and some stretching involved um, has been wonders and maybe um, anybody who has any desk career should consider that. I wish we were all on the same page about this because when I'm working out in the field and it's a long day, there's usually um, some amount of downtime where I could do some kind of physical activity, but I almost never do because, you know, there's no, there's really no place to find some privacy to maybe do some yoga for 30 minutes or even meditate (laughs) or something. And I don't usually want to ask that of anyone because, I don't know, you, you know what I mean? It, it can seem silly. You're afraid people will judge you. It's hard to be confident about those things. I, I wish we all wanted that so we could all have like a 15-minute yoga break in the middle of the day or something on, out, you know, working out on the field on an event. Yeah. Well, when I was working at a company, um, like it's, I've seen a lot of different companies that just have mandatory, like, hey, we're going to start the day with some exercises or, you know, everybody at lunch is going out and playing basketball together. Um, And you're going to miss that when you're a freelancer because it's just you and you're responsible for yourself. And there's nobody, there's no boss, there's no mom unless you're living at home that's coming in and telling you what to do. What did you study in school and how did that influence your work? Um, Well, I aced Mario. Um, I got a B minus in Zelda. Um, (laughs) No, uh, in college, I went to uh, the University of Santa Cruz and I studied music and there's just so much to learn about music. Like I went into there going, like, I know all about music. Like I've been doing, I've I've been doing it forever. I've been doing it since I've been five. Um, So what more can you teach me? And it's like, (laughs) oh, I see. You can teach me a lot. Um, so I had four years of theory and history and um, like you name it, like it's all been really, really important to me because the music that I make is the, the type of games that I like, which is the, the orchestral RPG, huge, rich scores. Um, that, that's what I wanted to do when I grew up. I wanted to make uh, Final Fantasy music. Um, and for sure, that's the way that I've been approaching my music education and wanted to learn all the basics and then the advanced and then the expertise of Bach chorales and and romantic Beethoven music and how he scored it and what they used and what instruments work well together. But I think there's a lot of people that um, don't need that. A lot of video game is very uh, techno and hip hop and you know chiptune and um, maybe you don't need such a, a foundation in music. Maybe you don't even need to, to know music. The Beatles did fine. Um, and I think that it's just kind of, 
you just have to follow your passion. And if your passion is, is doing rap music and maybe you want to do the next Donkey Kong rap song, that's going to work out for you. You just got to follow it. And um, that's, that's what I did. I would say at the very least, learn the piano, um, learn some basic uh, note music because like piano is like the, the English language of, of music. Like um, it allows you just to communicate with all the programs and to understand how to, to, to manipulate a score and to look at music. I mean, I think that's, you can work with Fruity Loops and maybe you don't need that so much, but I think that's the bare bones of what you'd need to do. I, I quickly found out I couldn't be uh, a composer for music that is just presented. Like you, you buy a concert ticket and see some performers. Like you just can't make a career out of that. Like, and it's very unfortunate, but society these days, um, it, it doesn't really want to support except a few very lucky people. And it's the same with artists. Um, it's just, it's a different environment compared to a couple hundred years ago when, you know, you would have patrons and you could actually make a career of just sitting around painting or doing music, but it's really hard now. So I was, I, I knew that I needed to have an entertainment angle and I knew video games was going to be my career ever since high school. Um, when I even dreamed it was possible, I said, that's what I want to do. And I could have done anything. I could have done math. I, I could have gone to any school, but I really wanted to go and do music and really push for video games. And I think part of that passion of learning and wanting it is what helps create the success today. Hey, 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 this is Nathan. Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed this episode of Sound Design Live, rate it, rate it. on iTunes or send it to a friend. But from what you're saying, it sure. sounds like uh, time better spent might be in consulting a witch or a sorcerer who could make <laughs> you really lucky. Absolutely. <laughs> I would say that you should go to all the Wiccan conventions and consult the Ouija board. Sound design. Yeah.